broadcasting live from the phx.fm studio in phoenix arizona it's time for valley business radio spotlighting the valley's best businesses and the people who lead them Hello and welcome to Valley Business Radio, where we tell the stories that traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre. I'm joined for this next special edition of Connect PHX, the series brought to you by PHX Startup Week, by three very interesting business leaders from here in the Valley. Pearl Falani is an owner, lead designer of Lady Jewel, and also on the core organizing team for PHX Startup Week. Welcome, Pearl. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so glad you could come. I'm looking forward to hearing more about your business journey and about Startup Week. Teresa Marzolf is owner of Culture Engineered, a unique HR firm that helps organizations be better listeners, driving employee engagement and retention. You Coming back on the show, you were here uh, close to a year ago. Nice to see you, Teresa. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And Pam Gabers with Gabriel's Angels, a 501c3 nonprofit that provides at-risk children with pet therapy. This is marvelous. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Welcome, Pam. Well, thank you, and I'm, I'm happy to be here with these two amazing women. Absolutely. And this is one of the things that we do here in the studio, but also that we're committed happens more broadly. And that is people connect with folks they might not otherwise meet, get to know them, get to know their businesses, and get to learn more about some resources, some opportunities that they might need that are available out there that we all have our own unique experience of. Pearl, let's start with you. Give us a bit of an overview of your work, uh, the kind of work you do and the people you serve. Well, for me, I am fortunate. I tell people that I tell stories through events as an event planner. I come from a corporate background. Marketing did that for 20 plus years, still do freelance marketing. So when I look at an event and kind of structured a company that way, it's all about storytelling and telling amazing stories for our organizations that we work with. Um, and then on the side, side-ish, I also help women build their personal brand. And that just came out of seeing some key women in my life as they were going back into the business world and, and being able to be a resource there to be able to say, here's the amazing skills and abilities you have, and let's translate that into business speak so that they understand that you can actually accomplish this, this job that you're applying for. You know, it's it's not... Those two things in my mind make perfect sense that they go together because on both fronts, you're talking about designing the experience people get to have, whether at an event or the experience people have of interacting with the persona that you are online or through your thought leadership content or things of that nature. How did you get into that kind of work? I had time to think about myself <laughs> and look through my background. I have a eclectic backgrounds. I mentioned I've done marketing, but I also did fashion retail for 10 years before that. And I come from a large community where we did a lot of events. So I kind of said, what are the things I like to do? Threw it in a hat and voila, created created some jobs for myself. <laughs> well, that's marvelous. You know, not, not everybody realizes that they can actually build a unique set of offerings and, and services and, and a meaningful business around uh, their eclectic diverse kinds of passions and, and hobbies and things. Now, you've lived here in Phoenix a long time since you were a child, yes. but you weren't born here. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. There isn't much there. I was born in Nigeria, but we came here when I was five years old, and there's a large Nigerian community here. We came here 
my family came here to the support the church ministry I grew up in. So I always jokingly say that we're missionaries to the United States, specifically to the Phoenix Valley. But that's how we ended up here and grew up here. So I'm a person that likes to build roots, build roots, large community. Um, but I've traveled around the country a little bit and around the world. And so I just like learning about different people, about different cultures, I think, because I'm from a different culture. Do you remember at five? Do you remember the the first experience of looking around and No, I like? barely remember yesterday. So. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> um, I don't have a lot. I mean... I wish to say that was a joke, but I'm not known for my best memory. I have a lot of amazing systems that make me look like I remember things. Thank you, Facebook, for memories. Um, But I don't remember much. The only memory that I personally remember that wasn't triggered by pictures is the simple fact that I remember a chicken running across our living room as in Nigeria. And I'm telling this to someone recently. My mom's like, you remember that? I was like, that was real? That wasn't a dream? She's like, oh, it was. Cut the head off and it just kind of escaped me. So truly everyone, when they say it's like a chicken with its head cut off, That's that is thing. true. Yep, that is a real thing. <laughs> and whether you grew up in rural America or, or rural Africa, you, that, that's a real thing. Well, that's, that was actually in the cities. I've never been in the rural. So that yeah. was just, mom was just making dinner. Yeah, <laughs> Very <marvelous>. fresh. <laughs> and tell us a little bit about your role. So events is something you do, you live and breathe in your own business. But then this is also a way in which you're serving the broader community here as a member of the core organizing team for PHX Startup Week. This event is the largest uh, event in the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in Arizona. Um, how long have you been involved and what's your current role? I This is my second year being part of the core team and and I help with the operations part. So basically the backbone of the event. We're going to be the ones that have been working on the venue, all of the setup and all the organization behind it and the pieces. And then again, day of making sure that as all of you are coming, you have an amazing experience there. And it's a lot of fun, um, and especially because we have three locations that it's going to be at. So it's, there's a lot of pieces to make sure that all works and works really well. Six days, three locations, two at each one, uh, Galvanize in Phoenix, the Better Business Bureau in North Phoenix, and then Fabric in Tempe. Uh, There's a lot of moving parts to this kind of event. Um, And one of the things we were talking about before we came in here to the studio and turned the microphones on is the uh, overcoming the perception that this is exclusively a technology-focused event. Uh, that, that may have been the roots of Startup Week in general, but certainly here in Phoenix over the years, it has evolved into a much more open, much more welcoming kind of environment for all types of business and nonprofit leaders, people who are trying to build something and for whom community is an important part of that equation. Can you speak a little bit to those issues and why that's important to you? It's true. It's We're really working together as an organization and as a community to say, you're all welcome. It's it's not about tech. It's about entrepreneurs. It's about people that are building. And we have a very loose version of what does it even mean to be an entrepreneur? You know, it's like if you define yourself as that, you're absolutely welcome to come. And even the fact, you'll notice that we say PHX. That's very purposeful because as the valley has grown and each city has its personality, we we want people to understand that it's not for the city of Phoenix. It's truly for the Valley. So we're talking whether you're in deep surprise Buckeye or you're, you're, you know, you're in Gilbert, 
making the track over, this is for you. It's for the whole entire valley. Our goal here is to make our valley strong and to make it a great place to do business. It really is such a fascinating place. As somebody who also didn't uh, grow up here, I moved here seven years ago to house it uh, and never left. Um, <laughs> we left the house. No, we, we left <laughs> We left the house. But um, my, my wife and I uh, came here with one child, ended up having a second one, decided that we would stay. In fact, when we first moved here, we moved to a place in deepest, furthest Buckeye. That's where <laughs> the house was that we were sitting. Um, and uh, it's no accident that when we were looking for, as we took this studio independent a month ago and we're looking for a new umbrella brand to describe what we do, that we selected phx.fm for very similar reasons. We What we're about in here is what we're about outside the walls of this studio, which is finding ways to connect the broader community, not only here in the Valley, but throughout the state of Arizona, really bringing people together and having conversations that are meaningful and impactful and honest and open. And I know that's the spirit behind Startup Week as well. So it definitely is the spirit behind it. And it's fun. And so even starting from last year, being the first time I was really part of it. I mean, before that, I went to one session. So for me, truly, my first experience with Startup Week was also being on the core organizing team last year. And then this year is the heart of we want to include people, but we we understand that there's a level, there's only so much inclusion you can do, but at least we're having the mindset of thinking through that. So everything, again, we talk about logistics from the background. So we're thinking, are we making sure that we have accessibility for people who may need that? Are we looking at, you know, just having uh, places for moms if they need to, you know, take care of certain things? All these mixes of different ideas to make that happen. We may not be able to cover all groups, but we're thinking about you. And it's really great. I love that you said this, Pearl, because it's something we've certainly talked about in this studio on many different occasions. Uh, diversity is often a reality. Inclusion is a conscious effort to make everyone feel welcome and at home. But that can't just be rhetoric. That has to translate into the the practices and the actual structures in any given thing, whether it's a company uh, or whether it's an event. So finding practical ways to execute on this commitment is super important. Let we'll circle back and talk about many more of these things. Teresa, why don't you give us a little introduction to Culture Engineered and the kind of work you do, the kind of people that you serve? Yeah, sure. So uh, Culture Engineered um, started in 2017. It'll actually turn three on Friday. Woo-hoo. And so um, uh, it's a company, my background's in HR. Um, so it's really a company designed to help uh, create high-performing, thoughtful employee experiences. So it's about getting into the mindset of employees and what needs to happen um, with their work experience so that they'll produce great results. Um, and that's what we do. How do you do that? Because this mythical uh, creature called uh, the engaged employee and the listening organization are, are, again, in the world of practices, that's not as common as we might think, given how much people, how much lip service people pay to those topics. So mm-hmm. how do you how do you execute that idea that an organization that listens well and employees that feel engaged and heard work 
how do you do it? So there's a couple of things, and I'll try not to get super geeky right here because I get really excited. And actually, Adrian, you know that. So um, one of the big things, there's some proactive and reactive things that we do. Um, Most of the time, companies already have, even if you just have a handful of people, you already have some kind of culture um, present. You have some things that people like and don't like things. There's some common bond that exists. So what we found is to identify what that is first, the positive factors kind of driving that experience and really build on that and then look to see where it's maybe not so great and then help um, either repair that, communicate better on that. It can be a variety of things. One of the things we do to do to identify what those driving factors are. We have a survey that tests on the 10 attributes of the employee experience, and we also do an employee net promoter score. So net promoter score, as I'm sure you know, Pearl, in the marketing world, it's um, a metric that's based on how likely you are to refer friends, family, colleagues, whatever, to a product or service. It's similar as an employee. How likely would you um, uh, refer someone to work for your organization? There are a lot of powerful, powerful metrics associated with high um, likeliness to refer someone, and uh, both as a consumer and as an employee. So we look to that number and then kind of build backwards on that number, what's feeding and driving that number most. So when when employees love the brand, is that driving it? When Because there's we can't be all things to all, all people, right? You can't pay the most and have the best benefits and, you know, have the best swag and, and it just, Cold it's so coffee, much. Yeah. <laughs> right. And especially small mid-sized businesses where every penny counts. Um, so instead, really focus on what you're, what, what resonates most with your folks in the way that produces valuable results. And then look what they're not happy with and figure out where the disconnect was. Did you not communicate? effectively on that. A lot of times compensation, dissatisfaction with compensation, it's often not a driver of great results. So by throwing more money at people, companies get frustrated when they don't see performance improve. So instead, have clearer conversations or more opportunity or insider transparency around compensation. And we help companies do that. That's just an example, but one of them. Now, you said a couple of things that I think are so important. I want to circle back and underline them and let you go a little further. The first is that you already have a culture. There's default culture in any organization, mm-hmm. uh, even when it's not an intentional one, even when it hasn't been thoughtfully designed. The, the culture is not something you're going to start just because you read a book or heard a keynote or now think, well, I, w- I want to do something and let's create a culture. No, you have one already. And it may not be one that reflects the ideals and the commitments of the leaders at that company. So starting point is dealing with what's so, right? The second thing, um, and it's related to the first, although it's slightly different. If you're saying to uh, an executive or a business owner, I'm going to help you learn more about what your employees think. There might be some hesitation because if you learn what they think, you might need to start doing something about it or at least feeling bad that you're not. Does it take a certain kind of leader to realize that the surveys and the tools that you're going to help them create to get more input from their people is the kind of feedback they even want to hear? Yeah, 
Yes. The answer to all of that is yes. So it definitely, it's usually a leader that is dedicated to learning. It's usually a leader that is self-aware and recognizes that's a never-ending journey. So great, you're aware today. Goal is be more aware tomorrow. Um, So it's definitely a specific kind of leader. To be fair, a lot of times it's a leader walking into a new organization when maybe some, you know, a lot of times trust and employee trust in leadership is lost for some reason or other. So imagine being a new leader walking into that situation. Or maybe you were somewhat of a removed leader or had someone in the organization that you trusted that was a different person than when you were around. These situations um, can be really harmful because our perceptions, it is employee mindset, how they perceive that situation is the reality they're working in. We can sit and talk about logic all day and I can go in and we do. I do a lot, personally, a lot of workplace investigations. And that's the interesting part of it. I can go in and tell you what's right, what's wrong. But how employees perceive what was done is really the thing that will impact your bottom line. Um, so it's a it's a different approach. Not that right and wrong doesn't have a place, but how we talk about when you say this, how that's perceived is a really important part of the conversation that is often lost because we're so focused on our intentions and not how that aligns to our execution, and in turn, how those how we execute is perceived. So um, again, kind of coming back to your question, it takes a really unique leader for whatever reason. Um, you know, maybe they're just, you know, I think it's really hard for founders. Um, a lot of family businesses, imagine, you know, you don't ask your family uh, to explain their reasoning for doing things. You know their reasoning for doing things. You grew up together. You understand how they think. They understand how you think. Well, imagine, and I just was talking with the CFO the other day about this, imagine then building on that foundation. And one of the big ways we establish trust in in the culture in the U.S. is to learn through experience. So if I watch how you respond to things and interact with things, I begin to establish trust in you. Even if I don't agree with how you responded to it, I can predict how you'll respond. And that in itself establishes a bond of trust. So then... But we're family. We don't do that. So now I'm going to hire people, and we're just going to keep communicating like we have. And it sucks for that person because just decisions all seem secretive and behind closed doors. Oh, and yes, they're not, they don't have that same foundation and base. Yeah, yeah. And you don't think to do it because yeah. I'm not going to say, oh, okay, hey, Pearl, sister that I grew up with, let's talk about every reason that you're doing this decision. I know you're a good person. I don't think you're shady. Hence, we work together. So, of course, you're just going to decide it. And I'm saying, well, Pearl's a good person. She's going to do what's right. And Adrian's new and he's going to say, man, what is up with Pearl? She just makes these, she fired that guy without any reason. And then now we're just going to pretend it doesn't matter. You know, there's just all these different perceptions going on. And I think it's really hard to see outside of our own. So the good part about some objective feedback tools is there now you can make choices. At the end of the day, you may not want a more transparent culture. Maybe that's not what you want to do. Well, now you've made that choice and you can communicate more effectively. Hey, you just got to trust me or don't. But at the end of the day, this is not a part of our business. We need to move fast and we can't talk about everything. You know, whatever that might be, 
Now you can make those conscious choices and actions so that you can attract the right people that are are looking for a culture like yours and will be successful in that environment, not kind of this bait and switch. We say we're transparent and then I come in and you don't want to tell me anything and then I'm a jerk and then, you know, anytime I raise concerns, I'm just a problematic employee and then I quit and go out and talk a lot of crap about you and also file a lot of claims against you. This isn't good for anybody. That person really believed in what you were talking about when they came in, likely, if your recruiting process is good. And then they're inside and it's totally a different experience. So again, it's just kind of getting into the mindset where they are, what's working, what's not, and looking to, you know, emphasize, you know, kind of cherry pick what's good and then put in an action plan to repair what's not so good. You had, you started, Teresa, to talk about it, but I was thinking from someone who's starting a business, entrepreneur startups, you know, they're in that beginning phase is what other things can they be thinking of? Because as you said, you already have a culture. So when you're in the beginning, how can you build the specific culture that you want, or at least even be thinking about, okay, I'm building a culture whether I think about it or not. How can I build that well? Yeah, Pearl, I think that's such a cool question. And that's, even something right now, you know, I talk about this with larger companies all day, but I've never had to do it for my own business until I started it just three years ago. It's hard to do. So what I recommend and what I do myself is focus on values. And then I really, it takes a while. Those values are kind of an ever-changing thing because we're, we're trying to, we're trying to you know, put into language and articulate a concept. So I think when we say integrity or, you know, we kind of make fun of these kind of lame ones that sound great, but really what does that mean? But then getting as specific as possible, well, what does that look like? And then building around that and knowing it's going to change. Um, Not that the concept is going to change, but we're going to articulate it better because it gets really hard. I always say the you know, the first person you hire is going to change every single value you have because how they interpret what you've said or what you've put down will be so different than how you put it down. So then it's kind of collaborating on that. What makes you guys great as a team and build upon there? So I think, um, you know, people a lot of times think they're being wishy-washy when they start messing with their values. And I don't think that's fair because, again, I mean, how we described our businesses today, I'm going to go out and describe it differently tomorrow, not because it is a different business, but just trying to get more specific in what that means. And I think that's what values are. You're trying to describe behaviors. So I I think what I hear you saying is that as a leader, that your actions really need to match your words, right? for sure. Because your actions will give employees ideas that possibly aren't there. So interesting. But I'm also hearing there's a sense of flexibility, that that flexibility is a good thing. Not that you're breaking or destroying who you are, but you're willing to be able to say, here's who I am. Here's the definition that we've created. Now I have this additional person who has a a slightly different perspective to that concept. So where can we mesh that together to now have a more robust version of that? Right. I think that's really well said. And I'll go back and save this uh, recording so that I can capture that because that is, I think, perfect way to explain it. Yeah. The flexibility piece, Pearl, is really critical because culture, whatever we mean when we use that word, is something like language in that it's shared. We participate in it, um, but but it doesn't belong to any one of us. And there's no single tastemaker in the case of language or linguistic expression or cultural forms that 
defines things. They are influenced by, and it changes over time. We're all sitting in this room speaking the English language to each other. None of us owns English, <laughs> right? And none of what, us you could. You didn't see my uh, trademark on it? I did not. No, I missed that one. <laughs> none of us also alone could go out and significantly change the English language. However, the English we're speaking today is not the English that was spoken 300 years ago and is not the earlier forms of the language that became the English that was spoken 300 years ago. So the language changes over time. It is dynamic. It is flexible. Uh, we even see it changing in, in our lifetime as new word forms and new expressions come into play and then they start to stick. But it's not centralized. It's not controlled. It's the antithesis of top-down kind of thing. As much as the grammar police would like you to think <laughs> that they're the ones that define it, it's just not true. And I digress a lot, but there was a fascinating debate about that in the 17th century, about what defines proper English. Is it what's in the dictionary or is it what people actually say? And there were two very distinct uh, kind of forms of thinking about that. Um, one was more driven by rules and the other was more driven by practice. Uh, I think what happens in the world of practice is infinitely more interesting, whether it's in an organization or, or in the world. Pam, tell us a little bit about your organization. You've got a very interesting history here. First of all, what is Gabriel's Angels and how do you serve folks? And then how did you get into this and find yourself doing it? Well, I always say that I'm the accidental entrepreneur in the nonprofit sector. And I'll give you the short uh, version of how I entered this sector. I did come from corporate America for 15 years. I traveled for a, a pharmaceutical company. And quite candidly, I didn't know my next door neighbor. And my local paper was the USA Today because it showed outside of my hotel room <laughs> in the morning. And I just had a need to connect with this wonderful state of Arizona. I I love it more and more every day that I'm here. I'll be here 31 years uh, this year. And during the interim of me resigning from my corporate job to find myself, I had a hole in my heart because I've always loved animals and I couldn't have a dog when I traveled. So it was January 1st. 1999, not that I, you know, kept that in my memory or anything, but I adopted the most adorable Weimariner puppy born on the planet. And I'm biased on that, Adrian, just so you know, and ladies. Um, I named him Gabriel. And at the time, I was volunteering at the Crisis Nursery in Phoenix. It's a safe haven for children who are victims of abuse and neglect under the age of 10. So I went to the nursery the next week and I, I said to the kids, I go, hey, guess what? And they go, what, Miss Pam? I said, I have a new puppy. One little boy said, well, what did you name him? I said, I named him Gabriel. And I went back the next week to volunteer, and those children came running up to me, and they go, Miss Pam, Miss Pam, how's Gabriel? What did Gabriel do? I said, well, Gabriel had his first bath. The next week, I went, and those kids were running up again. What did Gabriel do? And I said, Gabriel ate his bed, <laughs> which was a recurring issue and a recurring story with the children. But I realized that these children that, you know, I've, I just had such a heart for them because they're in situations due to no, no fault of their own. And they were bonding with an animal they never met. And I asked the crisis nursery chief executive, if I could bring Gabriel dressed as Rudolph to the Christmas party. So now we're in December of 99. And she just looked at me and she goes, well, that's interesting. And I'm like, I didn't hear a no in any of that. So I assumed it was a yes. And I brought him. And what, what transpired over that next hour and a half was 
moving because those kids were different. You know, I knew these kids and they weren't angry and violent. They were loving and compassionate. They would take that Weimaraner ear, which is like velvet, and they lay it on their cheek. And I remember one little boy was in his room crying. Now, he had just been removed from a home where he was abused, and he didn't even know what safe meant. He wanted to go back home. But he kept peeking around the corner to look at Gabe. He came out. He hugged Gabriel's neck, and he stopped crying. And the CEO of of the crisis nursery said, oh, I don't know what happened here today, but would you bring him back? And I felt like someone called my child a genius. And and as I got in the car to leave, I looked at Gabe in the rearview mirror, and he still had his antlers on, so he was digging it. Um, I said, what did you just do? And if he could have answered me, I've surmised he would have said, well, silly human, I simply did what dogs do best. And I decided I was going to join a group of people who were visiting abused and neglected children with their dogs, because I've heard of therapy dogs in hospitals. Certainly, there must be something like this in the great state of Arizona. And, you know, there wasn't. So I could have done something or I could have done nothing. And I'm kind of a something kind of girl. And I started the agency uh, with a vision, um, total startup, total entrepreneurial vision. I always knew that there were other dogs and other amazing people that would volunteer to help these kids. And it's a 20-year journey. We'll be 20 years old on May 1st. And it's been a privilege for me to help kids in Arizona. And, you know, when child abuse and neglect goes away, we'll shut our doors and I'll start up something else. Um, But unfortunately, that's not going to be the case. So we're busy. We're serving about 12,500 children a year in crisis nurseries and domestic violence shelters, homeless shelters, Title I schools. And there's 180 four-footed therapists here in Arizona that are helping these kids. So, yeah, it's been quite a remarkable journey for me. It's an incredible and so moving uh, to, to hear you share that. And I'm just struck by the similarities between what you just shared and what I hear from founders in this studio all the time. They might have come up with a different solution, because but it starts with an awareness of a problem and the the question. Well, why not do something about this? I'm, maybe I maybe I could figure this out. Right. There was nothing in. It doesn't sound anyway like there was anything in your professional journey to that point that had prepared you to set up and run a nonprofit. Not a thing, <laughs> right? It, it just it, and so you had to start figuring it out as we do in our own disciplines and on our own fields. Right. Well, what do I need to do next? What's the next right thing? Well, how do I do that? I don't know. I got to figure out this, solve this w- problem. Because at the end of the day, let's face it. I have a business, right? And I look at my my corporate career. I was probably in training. You know, the universe is always pretty out there watching out for me. I was in training to be able to run this nonprofit as a business. And also, the I'll, I'll be on the positive side. The success rate for nonprofits is the same as a success rate for a for-profit. Which is low. Which is super low. low, And I didn't want to be negative, but if I had known that, you know, I might have, (laughs) if I'd known then what I know now, but I didn't know. And I, 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 you know, there, there's, it's just tenacity and grit and business principles, whether you're in the for-profit or non-profit world that has really gotten us to where we are today. And, you know, it still amazes me sometimes donors, donors will come in our office and they'll go, all these people, volunteers, I have like 12 staff. Mm-hmm. And I go, yeah, I don't think they're going to come in and work 40 hours a week for free. Mm-hmm. I mean, the nonprofit sector is vibrant in this state. It contributes 9% of the gross domestic product. It's a big deal. It's 
the third largest industry in our state, like behind government and transportation and retail. So it's probably fourth now. You mentioned something really important. And it, and this is something that I think the general public maybe doesn't fully understand as well as those of us with experience in your world would like them to. And that is that nonprofit doesn't mean no money. Uh, yeah. Certainly volunteerism and a spirit of giving and, and, and so on it, animates a lot of what's we done. I always say it's a tax status and not a business plan. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And, you know, I, I grew up in a nonprofit radio station. Uh, my dad started uh, something in Southern California two years before I was born. He had $3,000 a year to run the entire station. Wow. Uh, so it was on the air from 3 p.m. till 10 p.m., five days a week. That's all that they could afford. And then he grew it over the next 35 years to be one of the largest nonprofit Christian radio stations awesome. in the country with an annual operating budget of over a million dollars. Every dollar raised through individual donations, no institutional donors, no government grants, no things of that nature. I went on and, and, and worked internationally in a number of large international nonprofits. And the fact is this all takes money and you have right. to pay people who are who are professionals in their thing to do the work that they do. And um, I, I think there's just some general misconceptions right. about it. Well, and it's that same conversation we have about overhead, you know, that if a, a nonprofit doesn't have a sound infrastructure, then too many times funders and donors go, well, we want to fund a new program where we have overhead and I don't want to go back to my office and take a rubber stamp and stamp my assistant, you're overhead. I mean, everything everyone does in our organization directly goes back to getting to our mission, which is providing pet therapy to at-risk kids. So yeah. there's um, uh, a lot of misconceptions about, mm -hmm. you know, organizations that say we're 90, 98% of our money goes to the program. Yeah, yeah. And th this is a super important point. And certainly in the international humanitarian relief world, the disaster relief war and earthquakes and famines and things, that's where I was working. We would often have to play this game of talking about the percentage, you know, that that goes to programs when in reality, all the administrative costs are program costs, um, whether they're in the headquarters in Oxford or whether they're in, you know, deepest, remotest Darfur, where I was actually working, you can't sustain the programs without the administrative right. support. That being said, the general concern for wanting to make sure that my money goes to the people who need it is valid. It's just the way in which that conversation has evolved is not... It's not a very I mean, it's such one. a yeah. game. And here in, in full disclosure, for those listening, that when a nonprofit spreads its functional expenses, the auditor doesn't do it, the staff does it. So any nonprofit Correct. can say any number they want and do your homework. I always say, give to a charity that you value their outcomes. What's the programmatic evaluation? How many are, it's great we reach 12,500 kids, but how do we know our program works through formal program evaluation, which we evaluate outcomes? I don't look at administrative overhead when I donate anymore. I look at, I look at the, what are the outcomes? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there because I also come from a nonprofit background for 10 over years. And I was on the fundraising side because it was completely donor funded. So that was our whole job. So we had these conversations all the time. And it was helping people understand that. Do you like, do you love what they're doing? Because ultimately all of this feeds into making this a possibility. And if you like that, then that's why you support and trust that the people that are running this organization are doing the best with what you've given them to make that happen. Right. And it's certainly, you know, you can tell I have the passion for what I do. 
but it has to be have the business principles behind it. And too many times nonprofits are started on passion only, yes. and that's why they don't succeed. 80% of the nonprofits in the state of Arizona have income under $250,000, so they're small. We're at about a million two, to credit to your dad, amen. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's not for the weak of heart, fundraising isn't. It's We're all individual donations and grants, and we're at it like crazy people, so. Yeah. I, I did want to say, kind of to add to that point, on on my side, nonprofits has been a big part of my business, which was not something I predicted because that's not my background. Um, but there's a couple of reasons for that. And one of the kind of Debbie Downer facts, sorry about that here, but I think it's so important to highlight because um, it was surprising to me, most of my workplace investigations are in nonprofit organizations, and it's usually something that's triggered by a concerned employee that funds aren't being used correctly or donations are being, you know, inappropriately applied, and then uh, or a board uh, a board directed investigation. And I think again, what it, uh, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, what it comes down to is just that communication that that here's what we did here that transparency, which again. Like your story, Pam, it's not – it wasn't like you went in and said, oh, I was a CEO here, so now I'm going to do – of course, you're just so focused on the mission. I think it's so easy for any founder or someone so in love with the results of their business, whether it's for-profit or nonprofit, to just be so dedicated to that that it can, you know, then outside perspectives – for whatever reason, see that as you think you know best or kind of all these things that can right. bubble up to trouble for an organization is so sucky. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's my theory on that. Now, any firm, once you hit about $250,000 in donations, you will have to hire an independent yep. external auditor right. to audit your books. Tell me how many small businesses on the for-profit side at $250,000 are auditing. I'm convinced there's a lot more fraud in the for-profit sector because nobody's watching. So, it, uh, it, you know, it's going to happen in every sector. And, you know, when, it, when we hear about the large ones and there's issues, you're like, oh. But the more nonprofits can be transparent. We've been audited now. I've hired an auditor for 13 years. And if I was my own business making, bringing in a million, I wouldn't have an auditor but somebody could be stealing my money. So I think we do put ourselves out there as we should because this is donor, you know, donors funding. Pam, that's such a great point because there's so many ways in which the the nonprofit sector or the benefit-driven sector could lead the way in conversations that affect uh, small businesses and large corporations alike. Um, the the kind of transparency and accountability, which is either self-imposed or it's coming from a regulatory or donor-driven environment, um, can really create some practices uh, and at the same time expose some bad behavior. And we should call out the bad behavior. Listen, a number of the organizations that I work – well, a number. There was there was three. Two of them had um, really large uh, uh, scandals that broke about people working for this organization in a remote environment that were either violating the code of conduct, embezzling money, or engaged in, in sexual harassment type violations and uh, or crimes. I mean – and those things tend to make the headlines because, after all, the do-gooders are not supposed to do bad things. And, of course, we know that's not true. If there are people involved and in a large organization, you've got 100,000 people right. involved. You're going to see a little of mm -hmm. everything. Um, and so finding a way that we can all 
be more transparent. Right. It's those internal controls that, yes. you know, I, I can I can have 10 of them and I have to have employees that follow 10 of them. So every year our auditor will go, any fraud in your organization? I go, I can never give you 100% no, but I can tell you the internal controls, which means sometimes you got to hire people just because, for example, I'm the CEO. I don't know where the check stock is at Gabriel's Angels. I don't know. I'm not allowed to know because I signed the checks. So it's an interesting piece of an entrepreneur for a profit. I'm signing the checks. I know where the check is. Matter of fact, I'm going to write it and sign it. Not in my world, you don't. Yeah. So it's made us tighter and it's better. I think I'm, I love our audit. We've all got a lot yeah. to learn from everyone. And I think that's one of yeah. the things that, that brings this show and this community together is that, you know, there's, there's so much that we can do to shine a light on each other's path. Um, and the only way to get there is through sharing the truth about our mistakes right. as well as our successes, right? I mean, that's a common theme in here anyway, um, because and I was just sharing this earlier this morning on another show. I, I've really started to think that the most valuable content that anyone, nonprofit, for-profit, sole prop, independent, whatever, the most valuable content anyone can share is something that is brave, something that takes guts to do. And by the way, I'm not convinced that I'm doing this myself. So it was just a thought that's kind of getting me <laughs> starting to feel like, uh-oh, okay, Adrian, you had another one of your insights. Now you're in trouble. Uh, and the reason for that is because there's so much out there that is that is not that takes no effort, that is not brave. People building a personal brand, for example, because of their natural gifts, they're pretty or they're, uh, you know, charismatic or whatever. And that's awesome. There's literally nothing wrong with that. Um, but it sometimes is also deeply inauthentic. And the, the most rare and potent ingredient in our storytelling is the truth. And that truth takes guts to share and you want to go viral with something, there's nothing more contagious than courage. Yeah. When I work with, with women, well, I tell my story one, just because I, I do. And I tell people this happened because I went through this process to get here. But two, I tell them I focus on the personal. I mean, again, I was a stylist once upon a time. So can I build you a brand? Absolutely. But that's not the point. The point is to understand who you are and then show that person to the world. That's really what we're about. But if you don't know who you are, which especially with a lot of women, I mean, men and women, we're just very busy here in our country. We don't take time to really be introspective, to understand who we are. And then as founders, as CEOs, as presidents of company, even more so. So after a while, you find yourself doing all these fantastic things, but you don't necessarily know who you are, the person person gets lost along the way. And so when you're trying to present that person to the world, it's like, oh, wait, who am I? Can I describe myself in a few words? Can I describe myself in a few sentences? Me, I'm a nerd. I'm a learner. I love to learn. My perfect job in the world would be to be able to go to college for free for the rest of my life and just learn and read and discuss stuff. And I am happy. I have yet to figure out how to monetize that. So I do other things that I love. Well, you spoke when you spoke of that, it's that the self-awareness piece that you say that leaders must have in order to want to improve or change their culture, exactly what you said as well. And who who really are we? I always say character is who you are in the dark. Like you're ready to go to bed and you're laying there. You know who you are. And are you willing to show that? That's the piece that people are afraid of. I think. I'm now going to totally steal that because character is who you are in the dark and courage is how much of that person you're willing to share in the light of yes. day. Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, look at this. We're just writing, we're writing copy, <laughs> marketing copy in Pretty here. Deep in we uh, are. <laughs> let's let's shift gears a little bit to talk about the environment in which we've we're all building our businesses and doing our things. One of the commitments of PHX Startup Week, as well as of the Connect PHX mini series that this show is a part of is to make people aware of resources, whether it's educational or um, mentors or um, you know, funding resources or you know, other kinds of things that people may not be aware of or that most uh, are not commonly discussed. So I'd just love to kind of hear from, from all of you, wh- what has helped you on your journey? Uh, what are some of the things that you've turned to or relied on or that were unexpected in the way they helped you get to where you are at this inflection point on your journey? Well, okay. I'm happy. <laughs> oh, yeah. One, two, three. Okay, let's do rock, paper, scissors. No, I'm going to, I was brought up to respect. <laughs> She's going to say you're elders, but I don't want to go there. Yeah. I didn't say that. <laughs> okay, so here, here's what impacted me, because in the corporate world, it was very territorial, and you don't ask for help because you better have it, and you had to fake it, like, I have this, I've got this. And what I've learned over the past 20 years is to ask for help. And it blows my mind, the people that go, I'll help you. In the beginning, I'd be like, really? (laughs) No, I'll help you. And I think that being willing to be a little vulnerable, this is the smallest big town ever. And I'm sure we all agree there's not six degrees of separation. It's like two. Oh, my gosh. I say the same thing. (laughs) Well, when somebody pulls out in front of you on the street, I just let them go because the odds are I probably know them and I don't want to, you know, make any weird hand signals. Or you know the person watching you that you didn't realize could see you. It's true. And I think that uh, being and networking a lot, I really grew this grassroots uh, from a grassroots standpoint, because I didn't live here, really. I mean, I wasn't ever here. And I started to network with a lot of powerful, amazing women. And I can't tell you what that did for our agency. I'll help you. I'll introduce you to this person. I'll introduce. Now I had to take that and run with it and be held accountable for it. But I had to really learn to ask for help because I always had a get habit when I was in my corporate world. So I, I've, I would say that's my number one. I definitely agree with that. And to build upon that, I was very fortunate that I had two other friends that were starting uh, businesses at the same time. So we kind of created our own little support group. And we, in one sense, divided and conquered. We were all coming from the same organization, actually, and then decided to go out on our own. And so I love technology. One of my other friends was really great with marketing. Another one was doing, and we just kind of, we would meet weekly and discuss issues and how we can encourage or hold each other accountable. And just having that base was amazing. And I I don't think I would still be doing this if I hadn't had that support system because it's a lonely thing to start to start anything, to start a nonprofit, to start a company. It, it feels very lonely when you're coming from a corporate world where you're in an office setting, you have a lot of people around you. And money to spend in the corporate world. Yes. Right? <laughs> well, and that's the fascinating thing. I mean, you're just speaking, Pam and Pearl, to two very different uh, expressions of this. One is in the, on the outside and kind of the solopreneur, scrappy, kind of figure it out with your friends world. And the other is inside a larger organization where there might be a women's leadership council or something of that nature, but it doesn't have a budget. And you know, if you're a, if you're a speaker on these topics, you're going to go to that corporation and be expected to speak for free because after all, you're a woman contributing to women. I mean, the, as somebody, as, as a professional speaker who 
who is passionately supporting my female colleagues, we male speakers need to do a better job of asking the organizers about the compensation and refusing to participate in events where there are women speaking at the same level as you who are being asked to do it for free for exposure. When you're getting paid your fee, if we don't ask, we don't learn how rotten some of the things are at the moment. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Good job. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I didn't make up that idea. Actually, no, I, I have know. to give credit yeah. to my friend Kathy Klotz Guest, who's really been leading the way on this. And I said, you know what? I, you're right. I'm going to do that. Teresa, as you have built your thing and continue to work with a lot of other businesses around the Valley, I'm curious, what are some of the resources that have either helped you or that you are aware of that other people should know more about? Um, there's some that help me personally, and then there are some that I feel help my clients. So I kind of want to talk about the two sides of that. For me personally, it was a very hard, lonely, emotional journey. <laughs> uh, not I, I really struggled way more than I thought I would going out on my own. Um, I, you know, working in the corporate environment, I definitely wasn't maybe a typical HR person. Um, so I thought, oh, it's fine. You know, I'm kind of <clears throat> more, I wouldn't say aggressive, but maybe more assertive than than um, I had usually found on my teams, you know, definitely very performance-driven kind of things that um, I always felt somewhat isolated in a corporate environment anyway because it wasn't something that I saw a lot of around me. There were some, but not a lot. So I thought, oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be totally, I got it. Uh, no, wrong. It took, um, yeah, I had probably a a, a whole year of really struggling. The cut in pay is brutal. The hustle, I hate selling. I don't really know how to do it still. Adrian, you know, you help me with these things. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, why don't you just let me come in and do something for you? And then we can talk about pricing after. I don't really understand. I just don't. And I love doing what I do. So that made it really hard um, f for a variety of reasons. So I found, I work out of Cohoots. Um, that I went there, I, we, my husband and I rescue dogs, uh, senior dogs, so they're all a mess um, anyway. So it's loud at my house. If someone dares to even look at our front door, we just have an explosion of barking. So I really started working out of there because I thought, oh, just it'll be quiet. I can have calls. And I tell, you know, um, Jenny and Odin, the owners, all the time, the reason I started working here are so different than the reasons I continued working here. Um, it does provide a community when I feel I'm getting down, when I'm not doing a lot of client visits or face-to-face -face meetings, it's nice to have, I can step away and go, you know, see someone in the break room or someone I haven't seen in a while, or they put together a lot of great events, which are really helpful. A lot of learning content, they'll put together um, events um, so that you can, you know, meet with a variety of people um, to help with some challenges you're having in the business. And they're really generous. The community is really generous with supporting each other, which is so awesome. Uh, an example, I had someone who kind of jerked me around on something on my website, and I'm not technical whatsoever, um, and um, jerked me around and just refused to fix it. And I reached out just like, hey, I can't fix this. And this person has just completely drained me of money. Can someone help? Someone I didn't know, he was worked out of Kohoot, said, oh, you want to just send me, uh, set me up with access to your website? It's so easy. It was built into the 
the um, template code. So I was terrified to like go in there and remove code without knowing what I was doing. And um, because it gives you, of course, like 15 warnings when you even look at the code, they're like, don't do it, don't do it. So he's like, oh, I can go in there. It'll take two seconds and did it and continue. I mean, just nice things like that, that of course, some coder or some programmer could have been like, ha ha ha, I've got you now. (laughs) I wouldn't have known any different. So little things like that. Got you into that situation. Yeah. Like the person that, yeah. Um, uh, which she has somehow vanished from the community, <laughs> but nonetheless. So I things like that for me personally were helpful. My husband has his own business. That was really helpful. I don't know how. Um, I don't think I, like, we'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning. I was say, are you thinking about work? Yeah, what do you have going on? Well, I have this going on. So that's so helpful. Um and then, because it really, my friends changed. They don't want to hear about this. I don't have money to go out. So sorry, you can go out by yourself. So that was really hard. Then for my clients, because we get with, you know, the feedback tools, um, we have the survey that I talked about, and then also an anonymous chat and platform. So people can express concerns early in the process, and I can help the company address that or look into it or answer it if it's just a lot of times just miscommunication and then conversational exit interviews. So get pulled into a lot of weird stuff that's outside my realm. So, um, um, compensation analysis or safety issues or just things that are not my space. Um, so I, uh, the local chapter of SHRM is amazing. It's different than the national SHRM. Our local Greater Phoenix version of SHRM is so awesome. And I highly recommend to all the HR people out there, it's not what you think. It's not the traditional version of SHRM that maybe I thought of when I heard that. So um, that's really great. The SPHX group, um, the Facebook group, I still go on there all the time for help or to pitch. I like, hey, what do you guys think of this? What are some issues around this? When I need to source speakers, I go on there. What are some companies that are doing things that are awesome that are maybe smaller than, you know, um, up and coming? And I haven't worked with them. They're really great. Um, so I think that those have been the really big groups. Disrupt HR was another one that's helpful. Um, so those have been some really great groups that I feel comfortable um, connecting my clients with and then they get good work or I partner with those people. It's just been awesome. So um, that's all I can think of. And I know I'm missing other ones, but it took me a while to find the ones that worked for me. The BNI groups are not for me. Um, Like some of them I go to and it's just painful for me. It's not I'm not my best self in these settings. So um, that took a while. I didn't realize that was a thing, that you had to find ones that were conducive to your approach. I thought they were all just kind of the same until I failed a lot of times. And people were like, that girl over in the corner sucks. She doesn't talk to anybody. Um, Then, you know, once I got more comfortable, people that want to share, talk about things that... I'm interested in. I love hearing about things I know nothing about, which are most things. Um, business challenges. I always want to hear your people drama because this is stuff that I have to like work very hard to get that. So um, those those once I started meeting those people, it was really awesome. Teresa, it occurs to me I want to ask you a, a follow up question. But Pearl, did you want to jump in and say something? I did. I just wanted to also throw out score. 
um, it's an acronym, so I'm I'm not going to remember the acronym. But for me, I'm a researcher in the sense that I'm always going to look up things. And so SCORE was a really great, I've never gotten to any of the local meetings, but their website was a wealth of information to just to find a lot of information. And they do mentorship. We're actually going to have them at PHX. They're doing the mentorship for us. So I'm excited to meet the people behind the resources I've been using for a while. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, very good. And uh, there's also other like... Um, you know, the Small Business Administration funds uh, um, the, what are they called, uh, SBDCs, Small Business Developments, usually in partnership with the university. Um, the co-working scene here, I think, is so interesting. Um, I have heard people complain about this and say, well, we need another co-working space when a new one opens. And the answer is, yes, we do. <laughs> because, first of all, they're community-driven. Second of all, they serve different people and different geographies. Mm-hmm. And if there's not one within five minutes of where you live, there's probably not enough because they provide so so many valuable resources and an experience of belonging somewhere. And it's also not just for the solopreneurs. A lot of the co-working spaces have large national or global corporations buying desks for their remote workers at some of these. So you have access to an entire network of people who are running the gamut of different things. Teresa, the follow-up question that I had for you is, I know in your work, not you, you see not only the problems – um, although you do see a lot of those, especially when you're doing those employee interviews, you know, exit interviews or stay interviews, or you're looking at the survey data with a leader to try to figure out how to fix what's not working. But I know that you also have an eye on companies that are doing it right, mm-hmm. companies that are really setting an example for others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could share just from your own experience, and I know some of the things you've organized for Conscious Capitalism, AZ, you've really been in conversation with some of the shining examples of good culture, good leadership, mm-hmm. uh, forward-thinking kinds of uh, organizations. Are any any of those that you want to call out and share? Yeah, I call them culture crushes that I have on some companies. To be fair, it's um, there's something called the Ikea effect. You know, if you help um, um, if people love things that they have um, like impacted, touched, created, they love those things more and put them at a high value, higher value than Especially things if it took that four you hours didn't make. Especially four hours of a little yeah. tiny wrench <laughs> to build it. Most beautiful bookshelf ever. So to be fair, there is that bias. It's totally true. But um, some of my favorites, and I just love them and think it's so cool and they're so different um which is especially cool because that they should be um but upward projects is always it's one of my longtime favorites so they own postinos and um windsor and federal pizza all these they have blown up in the last two years and they have the coolest culture now i when i was like 19 16 to probably 22 or something worked in a restaurant and i remember thinking Once I got into HR several years later, I will never work in that industry because, well, if you've worked in it, you know. Um, But uh, they are really um, thoughtful in the experience. And you think about it, that's mostly employees relying on supplemental income. This is not maybe necessarily a career. This is something they work a couple nights a week. And, you know, they do have some longtime folks. But nonetheless, that is super cool what they do. One of my favorite things that they do um, is their team leaders and managers are responsible for knowing their employees, what they like, what they're doing, what they're, and how they hold them accountable as they celebrate, I think, their anniversary. And they're responsible for giving them like a very personal gift. And I don't mean personal like in a creepy way, but personal in that that's like going to really mean something. I really know who something. you are as a person yeah. and yeah. what matters to you. Yeah. And I was talking with another business owner about that because he didn't really get it. And I said, think about, he's married, think about, and I know his wife. 
when it's almost your wife's birthday and how you start listening to everything that she's doing so focused because you know you have to give her a gift and you're two weeks away and you don't know what to get her. And so it's every lunch that she went on, every, you know, um, accessory she talks about, every commercial that she mentions something, every, you know, time she's going on a trip, you listen intently because you're looking for information on a gift. Now, think if you did that on a focused effort throughout the year, how effective that would be and how much of a better listener you were at that time. So when you force your force employees, leaders to know employees and know I'm, you're going to have to, you know, give them something special. I think it, it changes the focus of those conversations, not just, oh, how was your weekend? Oh, yeah, it's great. Anyway, can you get back to this work? I was, so, oh, well, why was it great? Did you do anything fun? A concert? Huh. How long have you, have you seen them play before? All of a sudden, it's different. So they're super cool. And you can flip that same example around and imagine what it would be like to give your partner a $50 Amazon gift card for her birthday. See how, <laughs> right. see how well that goes. Right. Yeah. Right. When it's like, what am I supposed what, to buy for myself on here? Like, what does it look yeah. like to not care yeah. about someone? And how it feels so just generic. Yeah. Like, yeah. I saw you get So up. Upward Projects, what are, what are yeah, other Yeah, WebPT. I think yep. we talk a lot about WebPT sure. and the cool things that we do. they do. Um, so that's awesome. Bigger companies, too, with a local presence. So I think a great example of that is waste management. Yes. Um, oh, I love man, waste management. It's unbelievable. I think I heard something like 80-something percent of their employees don't have access to email. And think about how consistent they are with their brand. And they are on point. And so that is shocking. That's just a stand-up meeting that they have before every shift. And that's dedication. That's across the country that they're doing these in a consistent way to where everyone can act in a way that they know their brand supports. That is amazing to me. So I think they are super cool. Um, Redirect Health is a new one. Um, they're uh, um, Definitely kind of turning there. They have a very startup culture. Um, they've really blown up in the last few years and they're very um, dedicated to their purpose. So obviously it's making affordable health care for everyone um, and uh, really took a tradition, uh, took the healthcare insurance um, relationship and kind of flipped it around and made it a lot more affordable to where you're paying like a hundred bucks for an employee a month. Um, for unlimited primary care. And so they uh, and have a really cool Yeah, it's good. Cool and I, I, I know David from Redirect Health, um, not very well, but we have a mutual friend who introduced us. We've had a couple of good conversations. It's interesting because that's the kind of organization that traditionally you would expect to be very sales driven. You know, we've got a product we need to push out. So we're getting we're getting agents. We're having an in-house sales team and we just got to sell, sell, sell. So, so to hear that they're focused on building a culture yeah. uh, that's meaningful. Pam, you must also have some... Uh, uh, standout examples, either of in the nonprofit or for-profit world, who's doing it right uh, that could shine a light uh, and guide us. And it's it's interesting you bring it up because it's important that nonprofits look at culture and look at employee satisfaction. And sometimes what happens is, you know, every dollar has to go to the late, you know, to the expenses and paying people and whatnot. Um, I know that a lot of the larger nonprofits, we have Child Crisis AZ and You Mom, two of the organizations that we serve, have really just been known in the Valley for how they take care of their people. And even as small as Gabriel's Angels is, we are, and you, you, oh, and you got me, Teresa, when you talked about the gifts, because I have such joy 
when I look at my staff and I knew what to get for Connie and I knew what to get for Larry and I knew what to get for Lisa. And it ran all the way from cashmere yarn because Lisa likes to crochet to this cool thing. You put a beer in it and it becomes a draft beer for Larry. (laughs) But I had such joy as a leader and they knew I cared about them. And that, that is something that a lot of organizations don't do, you know. And I think the smaller nonprofits, I mean, Foothills Animal Rescue is I'm a big fan of. They as well are known to what, you know, for what they can do to take care of their people. And sometimes, and we know this as business owners, people would rather have a day off than a raise. So we have a very lucrative PTO. Like, I mean, I'm I'm glad they don't take all their days or no one ever be there. But (laughs) it's the psychology of I can... I can absolutely take time off when I need to, and we encourage that, and that people can work out of their homes, but we like each other so much, we just want to be there to make to make it happen. So it the non, in the nonprofit sector, it's as important that leaders remember that, you know, my favorite class in college was corporate culture, because that just, like, was so awesome, because you're right, whether we work on it or not, it's there. And then whether it's not really right or wrong, it just is that I think that uh, nonprofit leaders could, if we had more of a opportunity for professional development, you know, that, that isn't quite a line item yet on a lot of budgets. Right. And you want you, we want that to be, it should be. Well, as Catherine Halpin, who's been in the studio says, uh, people problems become profit problems very quickly. So addressing those is probably the best way to ensure the overall Health. It's no accident, uh, Teresa, as you shared with me, that um, HR issues flow up usually to the CFO because that's where that's where it hurts the organization. And probably too many orgs are are playing defense in this regard. And when there is really an opportunity to develop a kind of um, more progressive HR practice within the firm that owns the the knowledge. Uh, and the storytelling function. I keep saying this, hoping somebody will pick it up and run with it. Mm-hmm. I think that too many companies have relegated the storytelling function to the marketing department. And I think HR could actually own the repository of knowledge and stories about us and our people mm-hmm. in a way that maybe they haven't yet. As we wrap up this conversation, we're actually <laughs> enjoying our, ourselves a little bit too much. We're getting <laughs> over time here, but uh, I want to be respectful of folks both in the studio as well as listeners. Um, but uh, Pearl, I do want to return to PHX Startup Week and just talk a little bit about the event. Um, it's currently two weeks out from the day we're broadcasting this interview, this conversation. Uh, what do you want folks to know? What can they expect? Uh, what, what does the organizing team still need? What what's kind of the latest from PHX Startup Week? I will get there, but I do have to talk about waste management really quickly, just mm-hmm. because you were talked about crushes, and one of my things is about green and sustainable events. Mm-hmm. And so the waste management open that just happened is one of the biggest green and sustainable events in the world, which is so huge. Like that's my goal is to have a large scale event like that that zero waste. And so I. I appreciate that that's part of their culture and that they've worked so hard to make it part of that event. Switch (laughs) to Startup Week. Um, You know, at this point, we're just excited. We've lined up a lot of great and amazing speakers, both from our local community here and from around the nation. You can go online to phxstartupweek.com. Agenda for all six days are up. All the speakers are up there. And so that's what we're excited about is really knowledge sharing and the opportunity for you to build community and build relationships with all kinds of people in different sectors of the entrepreneur 
world, right? And people that are in different stages of that journey. You know, they could be well-established, but they consider themselves entrepreneurs to, I just have an idea and I need some help and connections. Please come because this is about building our community and it's about building those connections and getting to know one another. It's not about selling. It's about learning from one another. It's about building those relationships and it's about building community, community together. Marvelous. PHX Startup Week is happening February 17 to 22nd. The first two days, February 17 and 18, are at Galvanize in downtown Phoenix in the Warehouse District. Then on the 19th and 20th at the Better Business Bureau. Yes, and, then- and parking is at North Baptist Church. So we're working through that, but that's where you should park for that. Park at North Baptist Church for the Better Business Bureau days. And then February 21st and 22nd at Fabric in Tempe, which I've never visited. It's a really cool venue. It's a fun spot. It's actually an incubator for the fashion industry. So they're working on, we, you wouldn't know it, but we actually have a really robust fashion industry here. And so that got started to help the entrepreneurs in the fashion industry. Yeah, it's very cool. Currently, you can get a general admission pass for the entire week, which includes lunches mm-hmm. on uh, all six days for 50 bucks. Yes. Uh, that's all venues, all sessions, and lunch. Uh, that price goes up on February 10. So grab that while you can. If you're not available for the entire week, you can get a venue pass for $25. And there's also team packages and things of that nature. And volunteers. Volunteers get access for free and they contribute to putting on the event. Um, There's still a need for volunteers. There are many, many different roles. Tell us what it's like from the volunteer perspective. From a volunteer perspective, you're making this event happen. (laughs) We care a lot about you and want this to be a successful event. And because we care about you, that's why we also offer the opportunity for you to participate in the event for free as well. Um, Because we have no event without volunteers. I mean, literally. All of us that are part of the core team, we're all volunteers. So truly, this event doesn't exist without volunteers. Some people are very extroverted, very outwardly going, uh, you know, happy to walk into a room full of 400 people and make new friends. Other folks uh, less inclined to do that. And being a volunteer is a great way to show up at the event already belonging to something and having a place to stand and a reason to be there and have people come up and talk to you. You know, I, I think volunteering in general is something that we ought to look at more carefully. When I had the the leadership from the Fiesta Bowl in here in December, they were talking about how that's the best way to get involved in that event is through the volunteer pathway. And uh, you could just find yourself really quickly being at home uh, and, and meeting a lot of folks that you wouldn't Otherwise, meet. So that's what I did my first year with ESPHX, and it was awesome. I did it the first day or set up because I thought I'm not gonna. Obviously, I'm not good in those settings, and I still have. There's been a lot of people: Kate Rogers, um, Mike Jones, Steve Rose, like all these folks that I met through that experience have helped me so much with aspects of my business, and I met them through that through ESPHX group or through the startup week. So get your tickets, but more importantly, reach out to the team and uh, ask what you can do as a volunteer. There are so many ways that you can contribute and make a difference and be contributed to in the process. Absolutely. We're ready for you. Excellent. I'm looking forward uh, to the event. It is, again, February 17th to 22nd. It is the the week that the Valley turns out 
uh, and you you never know who you'll end up sitting next to or having a conversation with. Uh, in addition to the sessions during the day, there are happy hours in the evening. All the information, everything is available on the website. Well, that's our show. We're over time and we need to wrap up here. I want to thank our guests very much uh, for joining us. Pam Gaber is CEO of Gabriel's Angels. Teresa Marzolf is the founder and chief culture engineer of Culture Engineered. <laughs> And Pearl Filani is the owner and lead designer with Lady Jewel and a member of the organizing team for PHX Startup Week. Thank you all for coming. So much this fun. Conversation. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having us. For all of us here at phx.fm, this is Dr. Adrian McIntyre. We'll see you next time on Valley Business Radio.